Hello, I'm Jim Irvin, and this is You're Not On The List, the show that celebrates forgotten albums and the people who love them. Two guests and I each select a record that never shows up on lists of the greatest ever made, one that we reckon is long overdue innovation. Now, throughout the COVID crisis of the last 18 months, someone had to keep the old folk who were shielding, entertained and stimulated through the long, lonely days, bewildered by having no access to public house, family or record shop. So my guests today nobly took it upon themselves to step into the breach and record dozens, nay hundreds, of cheerful podcasts and vlogcasts, super-serving anyone who was missing discussing pop music and other important trifles down the boozer or coffee shop. They are, inevitably, David Hepworth and Mark Ellen. Gents, hello. Greetings. So glad you fancied doing this. <laughs> yes, it's a delight to be to get the opportunity to talk to Mark again. You know, yes. it's only yes, been about half an hour since we last had a conversation. <laughs> we have never seen so much of each other in our lives. It's, it's a constant thing. What was disrupted for you both when lockdown struck? Did you have to cancel loads of planned events? I had a book just about to come out, and so I didn't do any of the normal things that you would do which make writing a book worthwhile which is human contact you know you go out and you talk in bookshops or literary festivals or whatever yeah. so all that went by the board which is a, a great shame really and uh, yeah that was the most obvious thing for me well we were doing we were doing an event about maybe one a month maybe a bit more than that uh, up at a pub in Islington yeah and we just had to stop doing those and we just had the idea that because everyone was at home and because they had time on their hands and because they had time to go up into the attic and rootle around and see if they can find some old records that they, they loved when they were growing up, that we might just start this and see if anybody wanted to join in. And, and it was just wonderfully easy to get hold of people, actually. And also a terrific therapy, I think, not just for us, <laughs> but for the people we interviewed and the people watching. And nobody, nobody uh, could think of anything they'd rather do than sit around talking about old records that they loved when they were, when they were kids. So it worked. Well, and also it's it's fantastic for for the people that you invite onto it to think this hasn't been a waste of my life. I can now tell someone absolutely. about it. Absolutely, <laughs> this is absolutely the case. We've uh, we've found ourselves saying this again and again. You know, people have said, "I've no idea why I hung on to this for the last forty years," and we all say the same thing. This is why you've hung on to it for the last forty <laughs> years. It's finally coming good now because you get to wave it in front of a load of people who might conceivably be interested in the fact that you got a a ticket stub from an Eddie and the Hot Rods gig in. 1975 or something like that mm. uh, you're meeting the few people on god's earth who might be interested in uh, in what you've kept yeah so you feel rewarded yeah you saw hookfoot and, and brewers droop you know at the reading festival or something and you've you've kind of forgotten about it and it's somehow to be able to talk about it makes the entire experience worthwhile it becomes part of your own uh, your own chronology and your own story it's yeah. wonderful the the word closed down in 2012. It's hard to believe it's nearly 10 years ago. But the, the, the brand has endured, hasn't it? I mean, you didn't really so much kill it off as send it down the river in a basket made of rushes, didn't you? <laughs> it's sort of... <laughs> it's, it's popped up elsewhere, hasn't it? Yeah, and we kept the podcast going that we'd started at the time, and that's been going for... When did we start that day? 2008, I think. So we'd been doing 13 years of the podcast. 
we tend to regard anybody else who's got into podcasting recently, which is just about all, all the loving fraternity. Mm. We look down our noses at them as, as Ari Viest, you know, had no interest <laughs> in this thing. Whatever. Thanks. We feel like we're, it's punk rock, you know, for us. You know, we kind of seized upon doing this long before most people did. It was always very popular. And I remember Mark very astutely said very early on, they may not like the magazine, but they like the idea of the company. You know yeah. what I mean? And I do think the secret source of all podcasts is the kind of amity enjoyed between the people doing them. I think that's one of the things that people really relate to. Dave had a, a, a wonderful idea very early on that the podcast should start by being faded up and then should end by just being faded out. The idea being that there was an eternal conversation going on and you yeah. were just eavesdropping for that brief period. And it reminded me of you and me and Paul DeNoyer actually back at Mojo magazine when Mojo started, whenever it was, in 93 or whatever. And we all shared a desk. We had a little, a little desk. Remember, the three desks put together was known as Bollocks Island. Yes. And we would just sit there kind of <laughs> riffing all day, thinking we were being incredibly funny. And we'd sit there, we'd talk about Nick Drake or Van Morrison or Kraftwerk or whoever it was we were going to be covering, uh, you know, XTC, and, and just kind of and kind of go off at tangents. And, and that actually was kind of like an early podcast, wasn't it? Yeah. That's exactly it what podcasts went, went on to be, which was just those kind of in-office conversations by a lot of people who cared a lot about it and knew a fair amount about it. I think early on in Mojo, the assumption was that the readers knew as much about this subject as we did. That's what it felt like anyway, that it was a conversation with a very knowledgeable readership. And uh, the hope was that they read it and thought, oh, wow, this magazine really gets me. But also, I suppose, you know, you know, it's always been one of the things that I used to love about reading the enemy or the Rolling Stone or whatever back in the day was the idea that half of it went over your head. Yeah. That was part of the appeal. Including, the, totally including the language as well. You, you yeah, go, you were so flattered by the, the fact that they thought you'd heard of yeah. Wayne County's electric chairs. You know, they, they, <laughs> yeah. you know and, and you kind of just had to get up to speed, and that was part of the fun of it, really. And now you can get up to speed. It's never been easier to get up to speed. Yeah. Thanks to... Wikipedia or whatever. I mean, the democratisation of the, of the internet must be galling for someone who spent their lives filtering and packaging content into entertaining <laughs> bundles. Does it ever feel like the lunatics have taken over the asylum to you or are you, you all know, for it? A, I'm very glad that I had my working life in that particular time when it was, you know, in the days when you could put a new magazine out and loads of people would go and try it and they'd go and buy it in the news agent or whatever. And that, people that, people approach me nowadays for advice about, you know, I'm thinking of going into the media or I want to be a music journalist. I say, please do not ask me because my advice is 20 years out of date, you know, and yeah. I'm very aware that it's 20 years out of date. It would be embarrassing to pretend I understood how you might go about it now. You know, things move along all the time. I, I had a good run out of it. But I do miss, and Dave and I talk about it quite a bit, I miss the fact that the music papers created uh, these wonderful folkloric figures out of pop stars and rock stars. It just made them bigger and more characterful, more important, more charismatic, more wonderful than they very often were, actually. And I don't think you have that at the moment. You don't have that, that, that someone to kind of put all those people in context. And uh, and make them seem, um, you know, instantly uh, accessible and understandable. I kind of miss that a bit. Yes, and, and what what I liked about Mojo was the ability to recalibrate that context to go, okay, we've told it this way, 
Now let's tell it this way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I can remember. I can remember having a conversation about with the Beatles. Could we? I mean, could we just do? I don't know. Just, just, just the magical mystery tour or something like that. Would that be worth doing? Or you know? And now there are entire books about just their brief trip yeah, to absolutely. Bournemouth, you yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> based upon two or three days. I think during the magical mystery tour, when they're sort of sitting around on the on the on the on the, on the coast uh, sunbathing. But at the time, we thought, God, can we risk it? Is that too much Beatles? There is no such thing as too much Beatles. There's no such thing as too much Beatles. Well, I mean, I I was responsible for suggesting we do an entire issue on them that time, and and Matt Snow said, yes, and we could do three different covers. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And the thought then is, was, yeah, would you think the readers would stand a whole issue on one subject? (laughs) Possibly, (laughs) yeah. It was it's strange to think that we even had to discuss it. Uh, well, that whole issue of what sells magazines when we were at Word, you know, we tried all sorts of stuff. And, uh, and, and only about five or six things were absolutely reliable. You know, and they were Keith Richards and Tom Waits and Joni Mitchell and the Pink Floyd uh, and the Beatles. It wasn't Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger on the cover. Uh, you know, it's it, it remained uh, glued and nailed to the shelf. Yes. Keith Richards, you know, he had to chop down some more trees. I know, I know he was on issue one, but there was a time when we would have thought twice about putting Dylan on the cover of Mojo, around about the time of Britpop. He didn't seem to have crossed into the next generation. And then suddenly, almost imperceptibly, it's, it felt right again. I, I know, isn't that extraordinary? You look back at it, he only had one real plateau, I think, which was about 80, maybe 81 to 87 and in, in that period, he was kind of commercially dead. Mm-hmm. And since then, I think he's been, I think he's been, you know, he's been delivering actually. And now he's absolutely there, and in, 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 as you know, it's immortality, isn't it? Do you think the magazines that you've created have helped re- rehabilitate some of these people? Well, I think so with Q. I mean, with Q, there were certain people we, that were just never written about by the, the available press, which at the time was the Enemy and the Melody Maker, and. Probably sounds a record mirror, but they wouldn't have touched. Would they have touched Neil Young or uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and uh, you know Steve Winwood, Eric Clapton? I mean, I don't know. We just went for those people. And thought nobody's ever told their life story, and their life story is fantastic. Mm. Most 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 life stories in, in at the time were just trajectories going up, and these trajectories went up, went down, went up, went down again, and just had a really extraordinary dynamic, and uh, and that worked brilliantly. Were you sad to see Q turn up its toes last year? Oh, very sad. I mean, you're always sad when those things disappear. But, I mean, all magazines seem to um, represent a time, don't they? And clearly it's it's time had gone. You know, it had the most difficult job of, of all of them, which is Q's job was to, was, to, was, to, was to represent the entire waterfront. Dave, congratulations on being the proud owner of the year 1971. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll invoice you, Jim, for for Any even mention. mentioning it. <laughs> uh, all the records we've chosen today are from 1972, so I'm clear. Yeah, from yeah. That. <laughs> Is that the case? Oh, yes. Um, how does that feel? Do, do you get a lot of people contacting you saying, I think you'll find the year 1973 was more significant for the following reasons? And, and they say, oh, right, yeah, I really enjoyed the book. Um, yeah, but don't you think it should be 1973? Or don't you think it should be 1979? Oh, what? <laughs> do these people stand up in front of novelists or whatever? And they, don't you think somebody different should have killed the, you know, the <laughs> victim? Uh, uh, you know, it's a book, for crying out loud. Funny thing about the 1971 notion was that you know it started life as a column in word 
And then, like most columns that you write, I never thought, oh, that's a bad idea or that was a flimsy idea or whatever. Mm. The more I thought about it, the truer I thought it was. And then when an agent approached me about writing a book, I said, no, I don't write that, but I would like to write a book about 1971. And so he said, all right, well, let's write a proposal. We wrote a proposal and, you know, so forth and a sample chapter and whatever. And it was punted round and it was re rejected. Let me make this clear. Rejected absolutely all over town. Mm. OK? All the people whose business it is to know what makes a good story, particularly... When a, you know, a, when a, a book about music is concerned, all of those people, with one exception, said, no, there's nothing here, there's nothing to see at all. And so it's, that's quite gratifying in retrospect <laughs> it is. to know how wrong experts can be, you know, and they were wrong with one accord. <laughs> that's the interesting <laughs> thing, you know. They all absolutely agreed there was nothing in that at all. Books about years don't sell, they said. I think one of the reasons that... Uh... That 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 people kind of say it should be another year and stuff is, is that you are you have a very clever and rather sweetly kind of antagonistic way of framing that in the book, which is basically 1971 is the best year. That's not you know that's not an opinion. That is a statement of fact, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what gets people's goats, which is wonderful. It's only an old smash hits joke. It's it is. What we use. It, yeah. It's the way that conversations at the smash hits office in the mid 80s or the early 80s were always framed. I can remember that Neil Tennant would say, what's the greatest record ever made? And we'd all go, I know this one. I know this. Don't tell me. Yes. I, I know this. You know. <laughs> and somebody else would go, I think you'll find, you'll find. you check you're working out is not that. It's actually that. So it's <laughs> idea of framing of what is clearly a subjective opinion as if it were a demonstrable fact. That's just funny. You know what I mean? It is. It's all it's all just opinion. It, it's there to keep the bright red ball of you know, conversation and speculation in the air. That's what it's there to do. You've, you, you said in, in the book that um, being born in 1950 was like w winning the lottery for someone that was interested in rock music because you've literally seen it spool out in real time, haven't you? So um, what was happening? What was the Dewsbury scene? Were you brought up in Dewsbury? <laughs> <laughs> the Dewsbury scene. Wow. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, you know, it's kind of Elvis Presley and the Elvis Brothers and things like that in the 1950s and going to watch going to watch Blue Hawaii and, you know, but obviously the big thing is the Beatles, you know. The arrival of the Beatles when I was 13, I suppose, and that was that was revolutionary in all kinds of ways, you know. And I can remember that I can remember going to see Hard Day's Night at the Dewsbury Pioneer Cinema, which is above the co-op reached by a lift, a slow lift that had a, you know, kind of metal grill across it. It's like going down the mines. <laughs> it's a going up, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and watching it two and a half times, you know, which yeah. is what you, those days. you came in halfway through and then you stayed until you reached the bit that, you, you know, you got to the, where you'd come in. And it was immensely exciting. Hard Day's Night is kind of the pinnacle of the Beatles, really. You know, the, both the film and the record. I think that's the most beautiful moment, you know, and it's how fortunate we are. They was captured so perfectly, you know, because it, had they had more money, they would have made it in colour and it wouldn't have been anything like as good. Mm. It, we wouldn't love it like we love it today, you know. And that's happened at every stage of the Beatles story. But the thing that only struck me forcibly recently is the Hard Day's Night as an LP is the first kind of 
authored LP by a band, as we still understand it today, yeah. you know what I mean, that Radiohead or whoever go into a studio and they kind of make a statement. Hard Day's Night was the first case of anybody doing that. Yeah. Because they wrote absolutely the whole thing. every tune. Yeah. Not even George. <laughs> it's John and Paul wrote, how many is it, 13 songs? Something like that. Maybe it might have been more. You know, here's here's the first side full of belters to go yeah. in the film. Oh, and while you're at it, here's six, which anybody else would give their eye teeth to have written one of. You can stick that on the other side. And nine of them were John's, weren't they, I think? Oh, he, possibly. I don't he know. really went yeah, down might, on you that You might record. be right. You might be right. Well, hard day, the song Hard Day's Night itself. Testament to the fact that the Beatles story continues to surprise us, that I only recently discovered that Hard Day's Night has got bongos on it. Yes. <laughs> now, and it changes your view of the world once you know that Hard Day's Night has got bongos on it. Because you listen to it and you can't unhear them. By God, it has got bongos on it. Yeah. And, and that's, it seems to me, is a perfect example of the little tweak that George Martin applied to the Beatles. You know what I mean? He just said, it needs a bit more surge in there. I know what would get it, bongos. <laughs> and it does. He's absolutely right. Mark, you, you were in Hampshire, weren't you? So, And you grew up with three elder sisters. How did that shape your musical oh, beginnings? Oh, yes, I did, I did. It's funny. You know, I was thinking about that only yesterday because David and I interviewed uh, uh, Bob Geldof for our, for our podcast, and yeah. he had two elder sisters. And therefore... He saw pop music, and on this this recording, he describes going to see the Beatles and the Stones and Dylan in the most incredible detail. And I felt the same way as he did, because if you went with your sisters and if your elder sisters were bringing records home, you tended to see those groups through their eyes. And at school, you know, my mates would talk about the Beatles and which one was the lead guitar player and which one was the bass player and who was it and who played the drums and what kind of equipment do they have and all that. Whereas if you had elder sisters, you 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 saw them in terms of who was the dishiest hair and clothes and yeah and sex appeal and their characters and uh, their facial expressions and the way they interacted and this kind of internal dynamism of the group and I thought it was an incredibly useful thing actually because I then went on to make a living you know uh, for a while uh, editing pop magazines and actually editing pop magazines as you know is is mostly well not mostly but a lot of it is about what things look like mm. you know that you'd make a decision about whether or not to cover a group particularly at Smash Hits by asking the record company to send around uh, some transparencies. That was more important, actually, than what they sounded like. If they looked interesting, they were going to work on the page. You might be able to sell them. You might be able to get people interested. I think it's no less important in the world of Mojo. People do not love Oasis just because of what they sound like. They loved them because of what they looked like. And it was every bit as important as it was with Duran Duran. Even though the fans probably wouldn't be comfortable saying that, that's what they would have thought. No, or, or even particularly conscious of it, actually. But it's just it's just part of the package, isn't it? It was really interesting that Bob Geldof was saying to us yesterday, he was talking about how beautiful rock stars were on stage, about how mm. Mick Jagger was so beautiful. I thought that was a really interesting observation because that's true. Mm. Men, men don't often admit that, you know. The idea that you might want to somehow emulate some of that yourself was a very powerful but it, it, it was also the notion, and the Stones are really an interesting example of this, the changing definition of looks. 
Because when the Rolling Stones first emerged in the UK, the story was the ugliest group in the world. Yeah. Well, nobody, I didn't really think that, but that's what the papers thought. It was only when the Stones went to America that whoever, I can't remember the name, the woman who was the editor, editor-in-chief of Vogue, she saw David Bailey's pictures of Mick Jagger and goes, that's beautiful. Yeah. And, and she provided the lens through which in the, the 60s was invented by, by people saying, no, what you previously thought was good-looking isn't. This is now good-looking. It's a different notion of good looks. Um, Mark, so what were the, the records that your sisters sort of turned you on to when you were... Gosh, well, the first record I can remember was, uh, let me think now, it was uh, Never Felt More Like Singing the Blues by Guy Mitchell, which we had a 78 of, yeah. which I think came out in 1956. I remember hearing that. Um, and bits of Elvis. Helen Shapiro, huge. Helen Shapiro's Walking Back to Happiness was a big one. Your sisters didn't see her on the tour with the Beatles, did they? Uh, no, but she did support them, didn't she, when yeah. she was about, I don't know... She 14, headlined over them. Headlined, she headlined, that's yeah. right, incredible. But we we were, we were got a lot of novelty records. Hole in My Shoe by Bernard Cribbins was a big one, which yep. I can still sing. Uh, right Said Fred, Gossip Calypso. My sisters and I were on holiday not long ago. We, we suddenly went into uh, Hole in My Shoe and realised we could sing the entire thing. Hole in My Shoe? Sorry, Hole, what in, the I mean? Hole in the Ground. Yeah. Oh, don't say Hole in My Shoe, ridiculous. Um, I don't know, but beyond that, I kind of went off on my own and... The wonderful compilation albums came in, nice enough to eat, and yeah. I discovered Fairport, Mott the Hoople, and Spooky too. Yeah, we've talked about that, haven't we? As as we like to say on this show, a brilliant gateway drug. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, we so many people on our podcast have talked about those. So it's just incredibly important. But that was kind of the thing for me, and the, and the Kinks was the big thing for me. Kinks, I can remember. I can remember hearing uh, hearing Sunny Afternoon and thinking a whole new adult world exists that I know nothing about. Incredible. In the year that Dave owns the rights to, 1971, you were attending the uh, Wheelie Festival in maroon corduroy trousers, isn't that right? I was! I was! <laughs> Wheelie Festival, oh my God, yes! Who was it? It was the Groundhogs, wasn't it? At four in the morning and... Uh, yeah, it was a whole Stewart, wasn't it? And, you know, Wishbone Ash and people like Weren't that. Weren't T-Rex showered with bottles of piss? They were. They were absolutely right. <laughs> no, pe- people were absolutely mortified. Uh, but I, I always think that I was born at the wrong age. If I'd been five years younger, I, I would have been able to see the Beatles and the, and the Stones really early on. If I'd born five years later, I would have seen the, the Clash and the Pistols and stuff. And I was the man, I was stuck with the kind of people we used to go and see. It was Quintessence at the Guildford <laughs> Civic Hall, you know, and, uh, yeah, Wishbone Ash at the, uh, at the Bracknell Sports Centre. Uh, that was the kind of entertainment. Brewers droop. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, we loved them because that's what was available and we thought it was fantastic. Okay, this may be foolish, but Stackwaddy game. <laughs> oh, go on, go on. Are you going to, you going to give us one? I'm going to give you one. Go on. I'm going to give you a 1971 special, okay, <laughs> which is really foolish. If it doesn't work, I'll just cut it out. Okay? Oh, great, 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 go, go on, go on. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sure you're both familiar with the records that made a big cultural impact in 71, but as this show is about forgotten albums, we're going to do some of those, all right? Um, and I realise this is a risk, Mark, as you admit to being able to quote chunks of sleeve notes from Skin Alley and Tucky Buzzard. <laughs> well, not necessarily. I wouldn't necessarily recognise their album titles. I'm hoping for some memory lapses. This year, do you remember Play for Today, the popular drama strand on the BBC? Yep. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, this, uh, 1971, was its first season, and it was called The Wednesday Play at that point, right? And it broadcast works by Johnny Spate and Alan Owen and Dennis Potter and N.F. Right. Simpson, right? 
So I'm going to go through some bands or artists who made records in 1971, and all you have to do is tell me whether the title I give you is the actual name of the album they released that year, or, or the title, or title of the label today. Very good. Uh, very good, Jim. Very, very good, Jim. <laughs> so if I say Bridget St. John, Songs for the Gentleman, that would be true. But if I say yep. Bridget St. John, Edna the Inebrated Woman, that would be a that, Wednesday That was play. a play yeah, for yeah, today. Yeah. I saw yeah. that, yeah. Yes, okay. So here we go. Uh, Dave Mason and Mama Cass Elliot, Playmates. True or Wednesday play? It sounds like a Wednesday play to me. I think it's a Wednesday play because I don't think that record's got yeah. a title. Am I it's wrong? Just, it's too fluffy a record, uh, uh, too, too superficial a title, no. I think. But anyway, go on. No, you're right. It's uh, Playmates was by Johnny Spate and it starred Marty Feldman. Very oh, good. Oh, OK. Very good. This is, this is good, Jim. All right. Folky yeah. singer-songwriter, Keith Christmas, Traitor. Oh, God. What's it called? Traitor? Yeah, Keith Christmas, album 1971, was called Traitor. Go on, I'm going to say Keith Christmas. OK. No, Am was, I wrong? It was a play by Dennis Potter starring oh, okay. John LeMessurier, one of his first <laughs> ah, big right. hits. And Keith it sounds Christmas too much like a concept album for a Keith Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Well, Go his on. album of that year was called Pygmy. Oh, Good God. God. Right. Well. Ian Carr's Nucleus. We'll talk about it later. True I... or Wednesday play? True. Wow. That sounds true. Like a, that sounds real to me. Yes, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Very good. It was on Vertigo. That's right. <laughs> uh, Peter Hamill was busy in '71. Van de Graaff Generator made an album called Porn Hearts, as you know, but he also made a solo album that referred to chess called Fool's Mate. True yeah. or Wednesday Play? True. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> You're going to get all these, aren't you? I know. Genesis, the Foxtrot. Yeah. Well, that, that's the oh, real. That was an album. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Genesis. Nope, their 1971 album was Nursery Crime. Oh, we always sneak oh, it. For goodness oh, sake. Oh, oh. oh, that's very clever. We've Get been your coat, Mark. we that's, <laughs> that's a cruel trick. Foxtrot was by Reese Adrian star Donald Pleasance, oh, and it was yeah. broadcast oh, on the 29th of April, 1971. <laughs> Jim, this is genius. You must have put a lot of work into this. It's fantastic. OK, Tim Hart and Maddie Pryor. The Man in the Sidecar. I think that's a play. Although huh? you can see the album cover, can't you? With Maddie Pryor on the motorbike. That's a difficult... I'm going to say it's a play. I'm going to say I'm going to agree with you. I think it's a play. Yes, it was by Simon Gray. It starred Gemma Jones. And right. the yes. actual Tim Hart, Maddie Pryor album that year was called Summer Solstice, oh, of course. Oh, wonderful. The funny thing about this play is that I remember it really vividly. And when I was looking this up and I looked on the list of the plays, it's been lost, apparently. It's one of the few that no longer exists. So it probably only, <laughs> only remains in my memory. Well, you see, that's the, that's the amazing thing to me very often about, about plays. You saw them only once yeah. and it's a hell of a long time ago and you still kind of remember. I suppose because there just wasn't that much stuff around. Yeah, so there was a scene in this where James Lawrenson, who was the lead, um, do you remember him? He was a New Zealand actor, quite sort of swarthy and, and good-looking. And he was a biker, and his his mate was the man in the sidecar. And they were wearing leathers, and they go into a, a biker's cafe somewhere. And they're sitting there having this conversation, during which he's accusing the man in the sidecar of sleeping with his wife. And he's ordered a piece of chocolate cake. And while he's having this conversation, he's pouring tomato ketchup and... HP sauce and mayonnaise over, and mustard over this oh, chocolate cake. cake. 
And then at the end of the conversation, he says, well, right, you've had my wife, now have my cake. Oh. And he sits there while this guy eats it. <laughs> my God. <laughs> who wrote, who wrote and that that's again? powerful stuff. Simon Gray. Simon Gray. Wow. Yeah. And then the next scene is the, is the, is the motorbike going along the, the horizon, one of those sort of silhouettes going up. And then the guy jumps out of the sidecar and throws up in, in a ditch. Oh, I'm not remotely surprised you haven't forgotten that because that's an extraordinary drama. And you would have been young when you saw it. So it's 10 or 11, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible, isn't it? It is. That, that the things can stay with Absolutely. you. Um, a couple more. Julie Covington made her debut album this year with songs written by Pete Aitken and Clive James. And it was called The Cellar and the Almond Tree. True or Wednesday play? Oh, Julie Covington. Am well, I thinking this yeah. is Julie Covington of the rock, later of the Rock Follies? Rock, rock Follies, Follies, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. What, God, did she, did she have a kind of slightly folksy kind of uh, previous life before all that? Because... Whatever it was with the almond tree doesn't that sounds that sounds a bit folk rock. Give me it? that title again, Jim. It was it called the cellar, as in coal cellar. The cellar and the almond tree. I think that's a Wednesday play. I'm going to say it's an album. Actually, I'm going to say it's a hippie album. Then again, Clive James. Go on. What's the answer? Her actual album was called Beautiful Changes. Oh, right. It a, okay. It was a it was a play by David Mercer starring Celia Johnson. Oh, Very lovely. good. Dame Celia Molstrangler, as I she was known. I love Celia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Donovan's 1970 one album was Season of the Witch. Well, it's obviously going to be... Well, obviously, he had a, an album called Season of the Witch. Or did he have a song called Season of the Witch? Did he have he had a, certainly had a song called Season of the Witch. Uh, maybe he didn't have an um, album. He, I think, I'm trying to think what Donovan album came out that year. Was it Donovan in concert? Um, but anyway, it's Wednesday, Wednesday play. Season... Season of the Witch is Wednesday play. Yeah, it was. Wednesday play by Desmond McCarthy yeah. and Johnny Byrne. But it starred a pop star. Ooh, Bonus points if on. you can name who it no, starred. Go on. Julie Driscoll. Hey, really? Oh, my goodness, wow. really? I never knew that. <laughs> I used to love Julie Driscoll. Yeah. There were only, at one stage, there were only pretty much two women in rock, and they were Julie Driscoll and Christine Perfect. And funny enough, Christine Perfect is still there, isn't she? She's still I the know. only woman in rock. I know. <laughs> um, uh, yes, the actual Donovan that year was uh, HMS Donovan, first one on the Dawn label. Oh, right. oh yeah. Uh, Ralph McTell, you well-meaning brought me here. True or Wednesday play? That is a Ralph McTell record. Yes, it is. Very good. And last one, Freddie and the Dreamers, No Trains to Lime Street. True or Wednesday play? Were Wednesday they making play. records in 1971? Yeah. They couldn't have been, but they're still going. They were, they were. It was a Wednesday play. I can't imagine that. There must be a play. It was actually a musical. It was a Wednesday play, but it was a musical with a book by Alan Owen. It Bro was. Broadcast on the 11th of March, 1971. So it's Alan Owen who did Hard Day's Night, as we, we were yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. So who wrote the songs? Uh, 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 I don't know. Is it a scaffold or something like that? No, give in. No, Those well-known scousers, Marty Wilde and Ronnie Scott. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> Freddie and the Dreamers did make an album that year. It was, it was a, a, also a musical called Oliver in the Overworld. They'd, they'd gone to kids' TV by that point, remember? And they did a show called Little Big Time. 
Yeah, well, they did, didn't they? And and this album was extracted from that, and it had "Give Me That Ting" on it. Oh, that's a great record. I yeah. love that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. "Give Me That Ding" yeah. made famous by the Pipkin. That's give right. Me, give me, give me that. Give me that ting. That's right. <laughs> yes. It's superb. And it was written... Jim. That was really, really sensational. <laughs> you put a lot of work into that. Stack what he started. I think the first one was somebody suggested that we should do. I think it was Scandinavian rock acts. Uh, or, or or items of IKEA furniture. That was and it just took off. I just thought it was so funny. Well, no, we've been doing our version of it before him, but uh, it was really good. It would work for a long time. That was fun. Right. Well, let's uh, crack on with our actual records, shall we? Um, <laughs> was that the intro? To yeah. That oh, was right. Intro. You know, you know what it's like. Come on. Yeah. We've got some records to discuss. <laughs> well, let's start with you then, Dave. Uh, you've chosen Bobby Charles' debut album, self-titled Let's Listen to a Bit and then tell us why you love it. Everything I have away 
that way. So that's Bobby Charles from the album Bobby Charles, released on Bearsville in 1972. And you heard Street People, Small Town Talk, Let Yourself Go, and I'm That Way. Dave. Yeah, I remember this entered my life in 1972, thanks to a, 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 a long-gone magazine called Let It Rock. And uh, the contributors included uh, Charlie Gillett and Simon Frith. and Clive James wrote for it as well. Clive it? James is right for it. And Charlie Gillett used to do a thing in it called Charlie Gillett's Top Ten, and uh, where he was supposed to pick, you know, ten records that uh, personally excited him. And uh, Charlie, being Charlie, couldn't really bring himself to pick albums because he really preferred singles. Month after month, this thing would appear. And at the top of Charlie's Top Ten would be the first three tracks on the second side of the Bobby Charles album, which <laughs> start, started with uh, Small Town Talk. i got it in front of me. Small Town Talk, Let Yourself Go and Grow Too Old, uh, which he said was just the most perfect trilogy. And uh, what intrigues me about this record is that I, went a, I got it, an import copy and so forth, and felt very full of myself for the fact that I, I liked this and appreciated this, and clearly nobody else did apart from me and Charlie Gillett. You know, that was, that was part of the attraction of it. And, and yet, over the years since... I, at regular intervals, I bump into people who have got Bob, the first Bobby Charles album. You know, I, I have to think laid back is a little bit... It, it, everybody thinks they can make a laid back sounding record by being laid back. Most of them are not laid back at all, whereas that really sounds absolutely laid back. In the same sense that, you know... I think playing loud doesn't make a record sound loud. You know, it's a, that, it's a skill thing. And so Bobby Charles came from New Orleans and he was the man who'd written See You Later, Alligator, and I don't know why I love you, but I do. Uh, and yet here he's moved to the, the East Coast and he's living in this hippie enclave and he's suddenly doing these same songs but with a very different sensibility, you know, and the people who play on it and the members of the band and Amos Garrett and, and Dr John and so forth. It was largely recorded in the middle of the night with no budget whatsoever. The, the remarkable thing about Boy Charles is he wrote these songs. He played no instrument whatsoever. Now, that's got to be very rare, hasn't it? <laughs> and so those songs, somehow he communicated them to some of the best musicians in their, in their tradition on God's earth. Yeah. You know what I mean? That he sat there in front of Amos Garrett and Rick Danko or whatever and said, it goes like this. And when they played it, he said, no, no, not like that, like this. You know what I mean? That's incredible. And it's just astonishing. He's no longer with us, Bobby Charles, you know, because he, he lived a... I, I don't think I don't think he looked after himself. Let's say that you know. Mm. But I, 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 it's a record I still feel I just great affection towards, and I find it very encouraging when I, as I say, I do meet people regularly who 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 will fix you with a missionary gleam in their eye and say. I'm a big fan of the first Bobby Charles album. <laughs> we belong to a secret society. Yeah, not only did he not play an instrument, but he was 17 when he wrote See You Later, Alligator. <laughs> so, well, you, you'd, you'd be fearful of anybody who was 40 years old who wrote See You Later, Alligator, <laughs> wouldn't you, really? It, it ought to come naturally to a 17-year-old, you know. You know, if, if records are about vibe as much as anything else, I think the vibe of that record 
is just absolutely remarkable. And actually, uh, he made records after this, which are all right, but they're nothing like... As, this is just... It's a magical record. It's a masterclass in economy, isn't it? it there's not a, an ounce of fat on any of these songs, you know. And, and I think it's... It's it's a lesson in how to make kind of low temperature music that still simmers, <laughs> you know. Absolutely, yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. and he's got that. Um, he's got tremendous energy in his voice. He's got that Cajun thing that he does on that last song that we heard there. I, I'm that way. I mean, he was a Cajun. He was a native Cajun guy, yeah. wasn't he? And he's got that delivery, and you can hear the energy in his voice, but he's just not using it all. So there's that lovely kind of latent power kind of discernible in, in his singing, which is what you say. It's not just about laying back. It's like knowing you've got stuff in the tank that, that, Absolutely. that makes it kind of gripping, doesn't it, without, without doing much. And uh, apparently none of the people who played on it ever thought it was going to come out. Right. They all thought, oh, it's, it's Bobby's doing a demo. <laughs> go, go and help him. They literally would clear out the bar at the end of the night and say, can you pop into the studio because I, I want to do a tune. And then that's how they did it. And people were hauled out of bed in the middle of the night. Can you come over and add a piano part on this? And yeah, don't worry, it's not going to come out. It's not <laughs> yeah. come out. Well, Small Town Talk is an extraordinarily evocative piece of music, really, in which almost, almost nothing happens, does it? There's a tiny bit of organ, there's some whistling, oh, they, uh, very simple bass. The organ playing is incredible on, on, on that, isn't it? And they, I, the thing I, I've drawn back to again and again is the drumming. Yeah, you can hear the space in the drumming. You yeah. know, I, 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 you know, I just I lean towards that drumming absolutely all the time. Uh, you know, and I have done. It's a long time, so you know, I've had this record nearly fifty years, and it delivers the same thrill now that it delivered. In 1972. His voice is really dryly recorded all the way through it, isn't it? And it's almost like someone said, you want some reverb, Bobby? And he's just gone, "Now nah, you're good. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm just, absolutely. I'm just, uh, I'm just doing this. It, it all seems, I mean, Jim, you've got more experience of this than I have, but it all seems to be the best, you know, any, whether they're a director or a producer or whatever, anybody is kind of supervising something creative. The best thing that they can ever say is, that's enough. It doesn't matter what it is. You need somebody who's there to say, it's finished. Stop now. Yeah. What it is, whatever it is, it's finished. And, uh, you know, classic case of this, uh, Mark and I were talking about the other day, John Wesley Harding, you know, that uh, he did the recordings, then he played them to Robbie Robertson, said, can you put some guitar on it? Robbie Robertson said, no, it's finished. <laughs> and was he ever right? Yeah. You know what I mean? An incredible and, thing to have said, really, to turn yeah. down that opportunity to be on another Dylan album. Amazing, but he was right. Rick Danko did. Rick Danko produce it. I mean, he's. I don't know. If, he's yeah, plays he plays on it. it. He co-writes Small Town Talk. Well, he started. He started off. John Simon, the great John Simon, started off producing it. Okay, yeah. But apparently, I think I think John Simon were probably a bit too prescriptive for for Bobby. So Bobby's definition of a producer was basically somebody who doesn't stop me doing anything. And so, so they think, who's a bigger <laughs> drunk than I am? Oh, Rick, come on down. <laughs> yeah, you uh, do. But, but boy, it works. And it's got a lovely picture on the cover uh, of him, uh, you know, sitting down uh, next to a tree, having his face licked by a dog. 
<laughs> you know, which, which definitely, definitely sets the tenor of it. Mark, this this record for you, did you know it at the time? Had you got it in 72? No, I didn't. I knew a few of the songs he'd done. I knew the, 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 the well-known ones, obviously. See You Later. And I don't know why I love you, which is a fantastic song. And Small Town Talk, but I, I, no, I, I didn't. And it's the first time I've gone back and, and heard it, really. And I thought it was fantastic. Really, really interesting and unusual and... Uh, you know, you could see why a small coterie would have would have uh, discovered that and felt very, very smug about it. Yes, absolutely. That was a point. That yeah, it point. is. Dave, I, I associate you with this kind of record and, and Little Feet. For some reason, whenever I think <laughs> of Little Feet, I think of you. It's, it, I don't know. Did, did you write, like, a massive sort of huge review of them or something? At some no, point? I've hardly ever written anything about Little Feet really? at all. Well, why uh, I, why no, I, I just... Uh, I worked at a record shop... Um, during in the period of about three years in the mid-70s, when the one thing that united all the long-haired people who worked in record shops was that they adored Little Feet. And so when Little Feet made their famous appearance at the uh, Rainbow, playing at the, uh, you know, the strange hour of three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, mm-hmm. supporting the Doobie Brothers... When Little Feet looked out at the audience, you know, what they were looking at was not just the unusual sight of a load of enthusiasts in the middle of Sunday afternoon, but also everybody who worked in a record shop in London <laughs> was in there, in, in that crowd, you know, uh, because they played the kind of music that British brands didn't really play. And they had that, that wonderful thing that you can't have anymore, which is mystique. Nobody really knew anything about them. There are only about two photographs of them. You know mm. what I mean? You know, the Lowell George was in there, Roy Estrada, but he left, and then there was Billy Payne and whatever. And, you know, nobody saw a video or or had read an interview or anything like that. So when they, when they appeared on stage at the Rainbow that afternoon, it was just an extraordinary moment. And also the degree of musicianship was so extraordinary. Oh, they're just incredible. I mean, you compared that to... I can remember going to America for the first time and discovering that most American bands could make a living for a while as covers bands just playing bars, you know. And that's what you did. That's how you started out. You became a kind of of human jukebox. You just learned a million songs. But in this country, it was completely different. It was that kind of... We get a band together and we kind of do a bit of rehearsal and then we go off and try and play our own songs. But Little Feet were the best example of just peerless musicianship. I'd never heard anything like it when I saw them, I think, in 70, 77, I think. Them playing, uh, you know, Day at the Dog Races. Do you remember that, that instrumental yeah. that they had? Oh, my goodness. It was I remember, I, I, this is how things stick in your mind. Do you remember there was, uh, from the mid-70s, there was a band signed to CBS which had the unfortunate name of a band called O. Yes. yes. A band called O. The only thing I remember about a band called O is they gave an interview at Zigzag, I think, and one member of them said, because all bands, all British bands loved Little Feet at the time, and one, one member said of Little Feet, the great thing about them is nobody is playing what you're hearing. And I thought it was a really interesting point, yes. you know, that it came from the interlocking yeah. of what they were doing. Yeah. And a huge amount of it was to do with the space between it. You know, you, you, you could sit down, sit down and imitate it. I thought it was a really good observation. Mm. And that's what made their music so fascinating. 
And, uh, of course, there they were at the Rainbow. And, you know, they ended up there. You just expected to do their kind of 35-minute support set. They were still there after an hour. Nobody would let them go. And Lowell George eventually had to come back for the third encore and stood there as the place everybody was standing in the Rainbow. He just went, you people are crazy. <laughs> Here we all are, standing in the rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> that, that very good. <laughs> Look at Mrs Jones. Yeah. <laughs> Lumbago. What I was coming on to say, Dave, was your shortlist that you gave to me for this was all American records. So at what point do you think your head was turned by Americana in this, in this way? Oh, God, I never thought of it that way. Um... There was a point in in music, I suppose around about 1970, 69, 70, when uh, a lot of people went in one or two directions. You either went Deep Purple, ELP, <laughs> Focus, and so forth, yep. or you went American, and I probably went American. And it's a certain amount of snobbery and certain amount of just the kind of things I like, you know, that I... A sort of limited tolerance for instrumental virtuosity and volume. You know, like I could take it for a, a, a certain period of time. Mm. You know, I just I liked I liked the the virtues of the well made song and all that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I was exactly the same. Me and my gang at college, living in the house we lived in, we all just discovered America, and we all we listened to was uh, the Allman Brothers band. And, uh, you know, the uh, New Riders of the Purple Sage, Dan Hicks and his hot licks, you know, uh, all that southern rock. We just became absolutely obsessed with it and thought it was Steely Dan. We thought it was just infinitely superior. So a kind of reverse snobbery, infinitely superior than to what was going on in Britain. I think a lot of that was to do with your romantic... Uh, association with America. You were getting yeah. America fed to you through through books and novels and films and you just so desperately wanted to go there, which I hadn't, hadn't done at that stage. You just thought, that is the place to be. That seems so much uh, sunnier and more uh, fabulous. But you, you were also helped by the fact that you didn't know anything about them, really. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember what else I put on the list. I, did, I, I, did I put Chip Taylor's Last Chance? I think I might have done. Yes, you yes, did. You did yeah. Chip Taylor's Last Chance. God, that's a masterpiece. Chip Taylor, John Voigt's brother, and man who wrote Wild Thing and Angel of the Morning and yeah, so forth. Angel of the Morning, but, what a song that is. But Last Chance is basically just kind of... It's it's a funny record about I attempt to make a country record and it's going to fail. But it's <laughs> funny and tuneful and I love that record to this day. But also the thing, that the, the thread all the way through my musical taste, and I was able to tell him this recently when we had him on the podcast, is Richard Thompson. Yeah, okay. Richard Thompson, who I first started listening to when I was 17, and I still listen to today. Mm. And he's never at any stage in all that time has he ever let me down. I mean, not that musicians really let you down. It's not their job to keep you up, you know. Uh, but uh, his music was kind of informed by America, I suppose, but but distinctly British. Did you even do Henry the Human Fly? Did you? I love Henry the Human it, Fly. I still to this day love Henry the Human Fly, and I like it more because it was the worst-selling record in the history of Warner Brothers music. Was the as he as he proudly. And you always quote that sleeve note, don't you, Dave? Was it Bugger said God it's raining again? Is the only line of sleeve, sleeve note is Bugger said God raining again. You know how can you not love a record? <laughs> Like that. I love that That's record. Good. And I feel so envious of anybody who's 21 today or whatever, because you can go out and you can hear it. You can go and buy it. 
I mean, and with um, uh, Fairport and, and Richard Thompson, I mean, that, that is a vast catalogue to, to sail through as well, isn't I it? I suppose it is, yeah. Just Richard Thompson records alone, you know, and they're, they're pretty much all good. Um, talking of large catalogues, uh, Mark, your choice was by Bob Weir. Of, oh, yeah, Bob Weir uh, of The Grateful Dead. Dead, indeed. Well, my choice was that um, there's a moment in, in you know most bands' history when 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 uh, when a lot of them start putting out solo albums. The Beatles, all four of them in one year. I think I think got a feeling. Yes, I think five of them put out solo albums at one yeah, point. Yeah. But the same thing happened with The Dead in, in, in around 1971, 72. And uh, but of course they're meant to be fiercely competitive. But being the dead, who are one cosy hippie fraternal, you know, self-supporting loving of a family, they all helped out on each other's records. So Bill Kreutzmann <laughs> and played drums on on Jerry's record, and Bob Weir and Jerry were on Mickey Hart's uh, album Rolling Thunder, and. Ultimately, all of the Grateful Dead finished up being the backing band. So it's effectively it's a Grateful Dead record. But it's, even the fearful Keith and Donna Godshow, if, uh, if uh, anyone listening remembers De- Grateful Dead, that was a low point, really, having them on board. But they did, and so, you know, word got out that he was making this. They all sneaked in one by one, saying, you know, if you like a bit of bass on this, or you know, a few bits of keyboards or whatever. And he had his old schoolmate from Wyoming, you know, uh, John Barlow, as the, as the lyricist. And um, the unkind thing, I think, to say about the dead is that, you know, where the Beatles and the Birds and, you know, the band and, and the Beach Boys all had three, occasionally four, great singers. The Dead had three or four singers, all of whom were inaccurate and faltering. And it was part of the whimsical charm of the group. But they were never, not conventionally considered much cop. And if you look for, a, you know, a Dead member among the, the ten best vocalist list, you'll have to look long and hard. But on this record, I think Bob Weir... Sings like an absolute angel, and the difference is between this and the Dead albums, it had which it had a real effect on the band. It's very arranged, it's very clean, it's very lean, it's very focused, it's contained, it's structured, and it's mostly noodle-free. It's got the Maxi Cali blues, which is this rollicking dance tune with a kind of mariachi brass section. It's fabulous, all about a, a three days ride from Bakersfield on a binge on a booze binge, and a girl with raven hair and a ruffled dress and a necklace made of gold. Turns out to be the cure for the Mexicali blues. That's so 1972. There's Cassidy, lovely old folk song about, uh, you know, with allusions of the of, of the hero of, of On the Road. There's The Greatest Story Never Told, this old rock and roll uh, throwback. There's Playing in the Band, which is a fabulous kind of big old West Coast, Coast anthem with those crunching old time signatures and chop rhythms. And all those songs, plus one more Saturday night, were adopted by the dead as cornerstones of their set. So it had a real effect on them. Also, it's got a, a track called Looks Like Rain on it, which is a most fabulous set of chords, soul ballad about a kind of crumbling relationship. So I think it's a fantastic record. It links all the, um, you know, it links all the best characteristics of the West Coast songwriters like Steve Stills, with all the harmonies and the soft tones of uh, records like the Working Men's Dead. Working Men's Dead. And, uh, and and all sorts of other music in the mix, that Mexican brass and rock and roll and folk and soul. And I think it's a major statement, actually, about the evolution of California music at the time. And I think it just really deserves more recognition. We've got a lot of fun out of listening to that at the time. And it's a great record. Let's um, play a bit of it, and then you can tell me, as someone who's never found a way into the Grateful Dead, all about the appeal of, of them. <laughs> oh, Lord.
Greatest story ever told, Mexicali Blues and Looks Like Rain, from Ace by Bob Weir. So, um... Oh, didn't they sound lovely? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Got a well, bit quiet. This, this... <laughs> Got quiet Dave's, Dave's side. <laughs> well, I mean, look, it, 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 I, have to, I have to say, my, my first impression of this was sort of, I don't know, the, that first track, uh, Great Story, I thought, oh, bluesy workout, um... Oh, colourless voice sounds like your square Christian uncle pretending to be Neil Young, and I was sort oh of Lord. I, well, yeah, that's what it felt. I was sort of harumphing my way through it, and then I heard that line: "The one thing we need is a left-hand monkey wrench." And I thought, that's "Oh, good. hello, hello, what's going on?" Yeah, <laughs> and then it, the the sort of long play out of that playing in the band thing seemed rather sort of tethered and strange. But after a while, the kind of offness began to seduce me, you know. And oh, good. It looks like rain is is sounding like a Gene Clark song. I thought it was really quite. quite Quite good and 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 Mexicali blues is fun as you say. It, it it reminded me of other wonky things like Spirit or Moby Grape or, or indeed, oh right Spirit yes yeah or indeed Family wonky. who we're going to discuss later. It's a whole genre you've yeah, yeah wonky rock there, Jim that's a good wonky rock that's a good idea <laughs> and also um, maybe a bit of love as well actually love made yeah. a great record called For Sale which nobody ever plays very much oh that one yeah fantastic. yeah fantastic but I mean also we mentioned Little Feet earlier and Lowell George's solo album Thanks Alita here is a bit like this sort of a romp round Americana isn't it yeah. So bit of everything going on you know and and that's got that uh, fantastic um, cheek to cheek which is like a, a kind of mariachi song o- o- on it and and i thought that's what sort of mexicali blues did on this it's just a sort of a like a palate cleanser isn't it halfway through yes. the record um and it also reminded me of straighter things like uh, neil's lofgren solo records or something there's something about that kind of i don't know it's sort of a gung-ho-ness about it but what is it about the dead? Please explain the Grateful Dead <laughs> to me. God, can, I can, can, I, can, I, can I leap in here? Yeah, yeah I, I, can, I can help you here, Jim. Okay, right. I too, you know, used to used to feel like you do. 
you know, I, and I've seen the Grateful Dead a few times actually, and and always come away kind of puzzled, really, as to you know. <laughs> giant question mark over your head. Absolutely, you know. <laughs> but the key to the Grateful Dead is the key to liking all kinds of music, which is this: stop trying, just stop trying. Yeah. Just leave it alone. And one day you will be in some kind of emotional state or you'll reach some point in your life or the weather will be of, mm. of a certain kind. The wind will change. And you'll, the wind will change and something will be ready will, for Jerry Garcia. You're thinking, you're thinking <laughs> what, what's this? It'll and all come goes, into focus. Well, it won't yeah. all come into focus, but some of it will come no, into focus. No, you'll get a door into it. That's what will happen. It's a little yeah, door and it just, and I do think this happens with music generally. Yes. You know, it's like when people say to me, what should I be listening to? I say, I should be listening to whatever you feel like, for crying out loud. Hmm. It's not a duty. No. They, the, 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 most, the best thing you can bring to the listening, the, the appreciation of music, is it is kind of being receptive. And you won't be equally receptive to everything all the time. And so I've, you know, it's probably over the last few years, I've found myself playing a load of Grateful Dead records without ever thinking I like the Grateful Dead. Mm. I just find myself yeah. playing Skull and Roses or whatever. I recently found, and I'd never listened to it before, there are, I think it's the album's called Built to Last, and which had Touch of Grey on it. And I'd never listened to their version of Black Muddy River, which Normal Waterston did on her first solo album. And I just played it and played it and played it again. I just thought it was absolutely remarkable. Actually, Skull and Roses is a good record to mention, actually, because I mean, I, I, I was originally attracted by the by the, the improviser. I was going through, at that age, a, a major thing about improv. You know, I was obsessed with Disraeli gears and everything that Cream did. And I loved the idea, the longer, the, the idea it started at this point and it would finish at that point and what happened in between would be different every night. And I found that completely thrilling and that's what was the big attraction for that. That's called jazz. Mark. Yes, it's jazz. It was exactly like jazz. It was jazz. And that's what I liked about it, actually. It, kind of rock, it was exactly the same principles. And uh, I thought that that little uh, that little adventure was wonderful. You land back down on Earth uh, on Earth again at the end. But uh, I then got to the stage where I got bored of those things. Just like the really tight edited kind of uh, uh, songs. Like the, the thing about Skull of Roses, it's got things like "Me and My Uncle," the old John Phillips song. It's got uh, it's got "Mama Tried," you know the uh, the, the wonderful old um, country tune, Mill Haggard. And that's a good place to start, I think. Start there, Jim. Start there and see how you get on. Well, I totally agree with Dave about don't try. I mean, that's what I did when I was, I don't know, 16 and first heard Astral yeah. Weeks and wasn't ready for it. And then when I was 19, I totally was. But that, you can understand people finding that a, to be a difficult record to get into because it's so extraordinary. But the thing about The Grateful Dead is they sound so ordinary to me. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean, but sometimes the ordinariness is kind of the part of the appeal. Yeah. It can be. Well, it, it became know. the appeal listening to this record. Like I said, it was the sort of offness, the stiffness, the bits that I didn't like about it started <laughs> to grow yeah. on me. I think, was, I think it struck me as really weird. Actually, did he make another solo album? He must have done, Mark. 
I mean, I'd never heard this record until until very recently, until you suggested I don't know it. if you did, actually. You, he must have, well, he must have done, since the group kind of broke up, since the death of Jerry, I'm sure he has. Uh, I mean. Okay, but, but yeah. he wasn't the start of a string of Bob No, it wasn't, no, it's just that they, I mean, I think it was one of those kind of George Harrison moments where he thought, like, I've got a stack of songs that maybe this group aren't taking very seriously, I'm going to record them and see what happens. Yeah, and okay, they became probably... major cornerstones of the set. It changed the group. I'll tell you the thing that I could think is funny. Is that the first you hear from him on the records when he starts to hear and go, yeah, that's right, you that's think, right. You think, Bob, we're pull yourself yeah. together. That is no you're need not for that. like that, Bob. I know, you know, you're not, you're not Peter Wolf and the Jay Giles band, <laughs> for God's sake. You're Bob Weir. You're, <laughs> you know, you're a handsome member of the Grateful Dead with a lovely ponytail. You have no. You have no business to be making that noise at all. <laughs> That's very well put. <laughs> yeah, he's really making an effort to get your attention, isn't he? Hey, there's a whole new me. Yeah. <laughs> I liked the, the the other line that stuck out for me was, "You got a deep six, your wristwatch." That was. Oh, uh, right. oh yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a finger wagging moment. Come on, everyone, don't worry about time. Yes. Well, look, let's bash on to, to my record from 1972. And as a contrast, because you both picked American things, I went to this side of the pond and I chose uh, Bandstand by Family. Let's have a burst of it. Just crooked on the wall, close 
Family, the album Bandstand. The tracks you heard there were Burlesque, My Friend the Sun, Coronation Mug and Top of the Hill. Well, Family seemed to occupy a unique place in, in rock at the time. They were sort of considered, I thought, at the front of progressive rock, which at that point, my reading of it, was music that tried stuff out, did unexpected things. It didn't have the same connotations that we put on that term these days. Um, originally they came from Leicester they came down to London to make a single for Liberty and quickly lionised by the kind of underground club scene and uh, signed a massive worldwide deal with um, uh, Reprise Records they were championed by Beatles and Stones they opened for the Stones at the Hyde Park Free Concert in 1969 and they were highly regarded as a live band Roger Chapman had this unusually aggressive stage presence in this time before heavy metal he was smashing tambourines and startling passers-by with his curious wobbly bleat of a voice that could be rough as old boots, but also reflective and, and mellow. And him and his uh, fellow songwriter Charlie Whitney were the constants in the band with uh, drummer Rob Townsend. But otherwise, family had this sort of revolving door policy of personnel. Um, but they always did well in readers' polls in the music press and even enjoyed some unlikely hit singles, The Weaver's Answer, In My Time, and Burlesque, the track we had a bit of there. And uh, bands on the rise at the time, like Genesis and Queen, sort of mentioned them as an inspiration. But somehow their unique place turned out to be a cul-de-sac. You know, nothing seemed to develop from from where they were. And they even felt like they were treading water a bit themselves eventually. And they announced a split and a farewell tour uh, in 1973 after an underperforming album called It's Only a Movie, which was like a an early nod towards pub rock. However, the album before it was this, Bandstand, and this this is the one that looks like uh, an old television set. All their records had Trixie sleeves, <laughs> and um, it might be the perfect example of, of, of what they did. I'd say this and Family Entertainment are the career high points. Uh, they self-produced nearly all their records. There's often a sense of we're just going to please ourselves and you can take it or leave it on their records. It's a bit like um, Stone's Exile on Main Street. The listener has to do some work to get it, to work out what's going on. Um, but there's real confidence by this time. I mean, Burlesque is a fantastic opening track, I think. Great riff, terrific groove. Bolero Babe is this meandering psychedelic thing with a string quartet. And you can really hear how Peter Gabriel and Genesis might have been influenced by family on that song, Coronation Mug. The melody's even a bit Gabrielish, I think. And that just centres around electric piano, moog and a vibraphone and seems to be a song about the chaotic Fulham home that uh, Rob, uh, that uh, Roger Chapman shared with journalist Jenny Fabian and Dr Sam Hutt, the future Hank Hank Wangford. Broken Nose is a w- weird, squeaky funk rock song. My Friend the Sun is a great bit of acoustic folk. And Top of the Hill is a marvellous closing track. It goes from a kind of loping, bluesy groove to a swirling orchestral finish with a marimba solo. There's something ineffable about their writing, which is both a strength and a weakness, I think. A bit like uh, Terry Reid or some somebody like that. It's sometimes hard to tell what's being said other than, listen to this vibe, everyone. And Chapman's lyrics can be uh, really vague. But they can also have a poetic grace to them too. And there's something about their strange recipe that gets under their, gets under your skin. I mean, from this distance, you can understand perhaps why they didn't get where they, they might have. But you think of Jethro Tull, we're about to go to number one in America with Thick as a Brick, which is just as weird as this record, but it's possibly the lack of focus, the fact that family weren't adopted by any kind of tribe that held them back. Chapman didn't promote himself as a, as a weird night out like Ian Anderson did. And maybe if their material hadn't, and their stance had been easier to understand, they'd have got a bit further. Um, as it is, they're part of that clique of semi-forgotten bands of the 70s like Procol Harum, The Straubs or Lindisfarne, who are really good in the moment 
but somehow didn't manage to project themselves into the future. It's funny, the contrast with uh, Jethro Tull. The thing about Jethro Tull is they really worked it. They worked America like hell. Mm. And they, they, you know, learned absolutely all the time what worked in front of the crowds in America, whereas contrast that with family. When family arrived for the first tour of America, presumably 1969 or may even be 68. It was 69, yeah. Their first break, first thing, first day, Rick Gretsch told... Roger Chapman, he was leaving to join Blind Faith. So, that's you right. know, that just shows you the kind of, uh, the presence of dumb luck in, in, in all this, you know, but, but Jethro Tull worked really hard at it. Not only that, but the same night, I think the night that Roger was so cross about the fact that Gretsch was leaving that he slung a mic stand off the stage and nearly hit Bill Graham. <laughs> Perfect. There that's not going to help, is it? No. There you go. Yeah. That's Liam <laughs> Gallagher, Bob Geldof. This is what you're going to do in the future yeah, to make right. it in America. Yeah, you know, <laughs> absolutely. It's, they it's toured. Funny. They funny enough, they toured with Elton John three times or two, no, at least oh, twice. Really? Yes. Uh, well, he, uh, he, they were, as you said, they were much admired. And I've, uh, yeah, I've always liked. I like this record. It's only you choosing for this and maybe kind of replay it. And uh, I'll tell you a funny thing. About over two years ago, I was asked by Demon Records if I'd like to put together a compilation of 70s kind of obscurities, if you like. And we're doing this four-CD compilation, which has been held up by the pandemic, but it's coming out in September. And when they sent me the thing to play through uh, recently, I thought this was all really good, actually. But the track that really struck me as remarkably good is my friend the sun yeah by family from this record which you played a bit of there i think is absolutely a wonderful record fantastic you know? isn't it? and uh but it, it doesn't they don't fit although burlesque correct me if i'm wrong it was a hit wasn't it it was yeah. it, was, it was a top 40 record yeah, wasn't top, it burlesque. Top, top 15 yeah, yeah. oh okay there you go you know so they they were not completely out in the underground you no. know so they they were in the center stage briefly but we, uh, weaver's answer got to number 10 in the chart. there you are and uh what a remarkably unpolished record it is you know what <laughs> i mean i mean clearly they can play obviously they can play but even at the beginning of, um, of Burlesque, when the, the, it was the groove, you can hear him talking, can't you? Yes, yeah, he goes, at one point, yeah. <laughs> it's nobody, nobody <laughs> cleans up anything at all, you know, which is, I suppose, a, a large part of the... It's like appeal. your podcast. Yeah, well, yeah. there you go. It's there part you of the go. charm, isn't it? Yeah. There you I remember, go. When, I remember the, this coming out, and I remember family generally, and, and liking all the different aspects of what they did. There's lots of folk music, psychedelia, there was kind of odd bits of kind of jazz and rock and roll and mm. a little bit of acid rock. And I, I kind of liked all those constituent parts. But at the time, I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite see them as a kind of fusion, really. No. It just didn't, uh, they didn't fit in. I, I couldn't categorise them at all. And, but it's funny, listening to it again, having not heard it for all that time, I kind of didn't, I just didn't work for me. And I went back and I, I listened to it again, uh, your suggestion, and thought it was wonderful, actually. I really liked it. It had a real charm. And uh, it was a real sense of adventure about it. Though each song was uh, was uh, was uh, an extraordinary little self-contained story, and uh, it, it worked. But I, 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 you know, I think Dave's right. They didn't have that sense of of presentation and projection that was going to get you get you anywhere really in America, certainly. But even anywhere here, they just were this kind of they reached a they reached a ceiling pretty quickly. Didn't they? I think they did. If you saw them live, I mean, Chapman had this extraordinary 
presence on on stage. Yeah, they they were commonly thought a lot of people at the time. If you look back at the press, said they played better than the Stones at the Hyde Park show. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting. Yeah, I'll tell you the other family thing that that I like uh, their album Fearless. Yeah, I don't know which has got an even more expensive Weird sleeve, die yeah. cut sleeve, <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah, the track on that. Uh, called Laugh Often and Sing, sing. Laugh yes. spelled L-A-R-F. Fantastic. And I love that. And that was written by Polly Palmer, wasn't it, the, the, the vibes uh, probably. player? <laughs> uh, probably. I mean, that, who, what other rock band had a vibraphone player at that point? They had a clarinet player, didn't they, at some point, I think? It was Jim King played the saxophone. Jim King, on, Jim uh, yeah, King, he yeah. did. Yeah, yeah, Very he good. Did. <laughs> all these guys have been in a nursing home somewhere. They'll all be sitting up going, somebody's mentioning my name. Somebody's mentioning you on a podcast. On a what? A podcast. You like podcasts? <laughs> Do you, you want, want a biscuit? biscuit? Yeah. <laughs> There's some boxing on the telly. He, he's, he's long gone, bless him, dear Jim King. Oh, is he? Oh, is he? Sorry. Yeah. Okay, well. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it, it strikes me with music like this that, that you may or may not have picked up on the time. Listening to it today can be a bit like trying to put something together without the blueprints. Do you know what I mean? That, that, that we no longer know where these records came from, what the sort of confluence of cultural influences were that sparked them. <laughs> so we have to kind of guess at their purpose. Will all records sooner or later end up like Stonehenge? <laughs> you know, where we go, how does this work? Do, does the moon have well, to be above it for us to do? <laughs> no, very good. We've come back... We, we... There's quite a bit, Mark and I, over the last year, particularly in the case of the Beatles. The Beatles is the classic case of this. Because I remember the Beatles as they happened. I'm acutely aware of the fact that 80% of the people who listen to the Beatles nowadays come at them in a totally different way. They arrive via Spotify and they arrive via uh, compilations and they're the number one album. So the kind of classic age of... um, of pop and rock, if you like, 50s, 60s, 70s, is is passing from living memory. And so it will now be like 19th century literature. You know, it'll be like Dickens. Nobody remembers it coming out in parts. They just remember being taught it at school. Yeah. You know? Well, and that's presumably the reason why they're remixing the Beatles records is to slightly future-proof them, isn't it? Isn't it? I suppose it may be part of it, yes. Their job is to keep engaging... A new audience. But again, you know, like I said, we were talking to Armit Zappa yesterday and he said, you know, I never expected that there would be new generations of people between the thir- in their 30s who are getting into this thing nowadays. And we were saying, well, presumably nobody at Marvel Comics saw- thought 30 years ago that they would be the kind of leading edge of, of popular entertainment in the, in the 21st century. No. But they are. If you look at the things that were big hits in America in 1971, they're ranged from, uh, I don't know, you know, What's Going On, Sly and the Family Stone, Carol King, James Taylor, mm. all kinds of different things that appeared to be coming from all different points of the compass. And I think what they all had in common was mostly people felt they'd never heard anything like that before. Whereas I don't get the feeling people think that anymore. I feel that records are quite carefully engineered to get a little bit of that and a little bit of that and a little bit of this that works over here. Did you find the way that you enjoyed records completely changed when you became a music journalist? I did. 
Exactly the same way as I did when I became a, a restaurant critic. It, it, it slightly took the edge of it for me. I used to love going to restaurants, and suddenly you had to sit there and work out how you describe these courgettes. <laughs> and it kind of just, instead of just like, having a glass of wine and having an amusing conversation with somebody, it was very difficult. I found that particularly live with live, going to live concerts, you know, sitting there the whole time thinking, constantly taking notes, thinking, this could be the key moment. This could be the key moment here. And uh, I found that was disruptive. <laughs> what are the main adjectives for a courgette? <laughs> oh, God, what would they have been? Uh, if it was zucchini, then I suppose it'd be crunchy, <laughs> salted. <laughs> I have no idea. Somebody, somebody, a friend got in touch with me the other day and said that he'd heard the new, the new Crowded House record, I think, and he said he wasn't very impressed with it. And uh, he said, have you heard it? And I said, no, I haven't heard it, because I realised that of late, and this is to do with not writing about stuff anymore, I do not listen to anything within a year of it coming out because I think people's opinions are completely all over the place because they're rushing to reach some conclusion mm. which they haven't reached at all. You know, so if there's a new Bruce Springsteen record, you'd immediately get a load of people on social media saying, it's brilliant, and I'm thinking, you don't know at all. It's only you been really out five minutes. Know. It's only been out five minutes. Because <laughs> it's exactly we... the same with films, too. That you know, I'm, we... not, I'm not a tearing rush to see any film now. I just want to wait to see in a few months' time what the general feeling is and then make my decision. But, but the thing about records, LP records particularly, is that, you know, you, you'd have them to review and, and so for a week you'd listen to pretty much nothing but that record. And what you're trying to do is is come up with a line to write about, aren't you? Some point of view. And then and you write it and the piece is published and then you don't play the record for months. And that's the review. The fact that you didn't play it for <laughs> the next few months. Yeah. That's the truth. Yeah. And, and the good records are the ones that you find yourself just pulled back to. I, I remember that about REM records. Everybody reviewed, seemed to review an REM record saying, actually, the last one wasn't as good as we said it was, but this one's great. Yeah. <laughs> but you're not really reviewing the album. You're reviewing uh, your chances of trying to get REM on the cover, on the cover yeah. of the next issue. <laughs> 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 so there's a completely different agenda going on there. <laughs> I was just thinking rock magazines, they should, do a, they should do the review and they should do the thing. In fact, some of them we did. We did do this on one magazine. But three or four months later, you'd say, what, what, did, what we feel about it now? I thought it was really worthwhile when you live with that record. Yeah. And you've tried to work out whether or not it really But is. generally speaking, the truth of what you feel about it now is, you know, it's not all that great. <laughs> because yeah. here's the, the great truth of reviews. And I speak as the man who was behind putting star ratings in queue when it launched, and which is a, a thing I've regretted. I hope ever you since. regret it. Yes. <laughs> is the truth, Jim, about all reviews is is they're all three stars. Yeah. Because they're all all right if you like this kind of thing. Yeah. If you like the kind of thing, you'll find something to like about it. They're, it's an exceptional record that's either worse than that or better than that. And the trouble with three stars is that's the one review you never read, or two stars, or really four yeah. stars. This, the no. reviews you always read are one star and five stars because they're going to be really entertaining. I got a reissue of a furniture album in Mojo. They gave it a three star review. I thought, come on, you could give me another extra star for having been a staff member. You think so? <laughs> dear oh dear oh on the star system that I still remember Charles Shaw Murray reviewing a, a reissue of um, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band giving it three stars <laughs> well, that's, I'm going to ring them Charlie. up 
and having to ring him up and say, Charlie, you know, he said, no. And it was a very interesting conversation because he said, within the context of the Beatles records, mm. I think there are better ones. Uh, uh, but I said, Charlie, you're not doing that. He's within the context of it being up against, you know what I mean, um, whoever it would have been that week, the Jesus and Mary chain, you mm. know. Is it is it really three stars? You know, please. He did give uh, "Be Here Now" by Aces five stars in Mojo. He did, he did. I'm sure it's not a night that he doesn't go to sleep in a fetal <laughs> position, bathed in sweat, thinking, "God, I hope no one's talking about that." <laughs> so, if you're listening, Charlie, sorry. <laughs> Well, gents, the clock is looking at its watch, so I am uh, feel it's time to draw this what to a fun. close. <laughs> the clock is looking at its watch. Thank you. Good. Thank what you fun. so much. So much for, for joining me on this. It's been an absolute Best delight. of luck picking the bones yeah. out of that. Yes, oh, best of luck editing, because we've been recording That's now for about two hours. A week. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> That's going to be like going through the concert recordings of Frank Zappa. That's which right. Which is an endless Sisyphean task. It's been great fun. Thanks, Jim. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, see you again. Will do. Bye. Bye. If you have access to Spotify, you can find a playlist labelled You're Not On The List, episode three, that includes all the music we've been discussing today, including the complete albums Bobby Charles by Bobby Charles, selected by my guest David Hepworth, Ace by Bob Weir from Mark Ellen, and my own selection Bandstand by Family. Hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, do like and comment on us wherever you get podcasts because that drives other listeners to us. And for that, we are very, very grateful. And do join us again for more of the same uh, next time when I'll have some more guests uh, discussing some forgotten albums. Thank you very much. See you then. Bye-bye.